So let's dive into our sermon. Today, what we are going to see back in the Gospel of John is we are going to see three scenes in John's narrative, three scenes where we see very different responses to the miracles of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to do some work here because in our day, we do believe that Jesus performs miracles in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But many times, we don't experience the miraculous power like what we read about in the New Testament. Sure, it happens. We hear about it in the field. We hear about it from missionaries where God is miraculously healing. And I'm, I'm not talking about the blessing of where you have cancer and the church prays for you and you show up and then the doctor tells you after doing some treatment saying, hey, the, 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 the tumor's completely gone. That is a miracle. But we are talking about instantaneous supernatural manifestation of the Spirit's power where medical technology is not available. This is the world of the New Testament. So for us, when we read passages like John chapter 4, John chapter 5, it kind of just passes over us and says, okay, that's great, that's the New Testament. But where are those miracles in our lives today? What does Jesus demand of us? But we're going to actually see that Jesus, in his day, he challenged the notion of the Jews who all they wanted were signs and miracles, and he wanted people just to simply take him at his word, something that you and I can relate to. So three scenes. The first scene, we will see a response of false belief where the people are enamored with Jesus' miracles, yet they reject him as Messiah. In the second scene, we will see a response of gradual belief. We see a man who he begs Jesus for a miracle, but this man is challenged to simply take Jesus at his word. And in the third scene, we will see a response of no belief, or we can say indifference, where Jesus actually heals a man, and you would think that this man would have his life changed, but no, he responds with complete indifference. And some believe he responded with betrayal. And so I've entitled our time together this morning as taking Jesus at his word. Taking Jesus at his word. If you have God's word, will you meet me now in John chapter 4? Will you meet me in John chapter 4? Starting in verse 43. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. And in verses 43 to 45, we see this first scene of false belief. False belief. Now here's what John the Apostle writes for us in verses 43 to 45. John chapter 4, verse 43, it says, After two days he departed, and that he departed Samaria for Galilee. Verse 44, parenthetical note, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, verse 43 tells us of, us of the simple fact that after two days with the Samaritans, Jesus departed and he headed north to Galilee. 
But in the bigger picture, what's happening is he's leaving this foreign region of Samaria's. The, the Jews hated the Samaritans. We explained that over the past two, uh, two sermons in John. That the Jews hated Samaritans, yet Jesus received a warm reception. Not only a warm reception, but apart from signs and miracles, the Samaritans, who should have rejected Jesus, received Jesus, just taking him at his word. Now he's going back into Galilee, and Galilee is his home region, because Galilee is where Nazareth was located, and Jesus was from Nazareth. So, so he's entering back into his hometown. Now, verse 44, it gives us this parenthetical note, uh, and it's this statement made by Jesus that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. No, there is no scripture citation that's made here this is simply a proverbial saying or that jesus is saying and so this is true somewhat when you grow up in a certain community people know you so there's two responses that they can have if you grow up in a certain town let's just say walnut and somehow you become powerful and famous people might want to connect themselves to you in in a sense of relational proximity to power and prestige. So maybe they don't really care about who you are. They, they never really cared about you before. But now that you're powerful and famous, they want to tie themselves to you, say, oh, we know you. That's our hometown kid. I went to high school with her. I went to high school with him. And if they can somehow connect with you, maybe there's some relational privilege to the proximity of knowing you. Others as famous as you become, and in some sense it's good, it, it, they don't let it get to your head, they will say, oh, isn't that just Mary's boy? Isn't that that carpenter's kid? Yeah, he says, he says that, that thou shall not kill or something like that, but that's, that's the, he's just saying that we know him. We were just over at his house, his mom's house for a barbecue. Actually, Jews don't eat uh, pork, so not a barbecue. Right, but we were just over there for fish. <laughs> and sometimes when Jesus begins to exercise his authority and he begins to speak with authority, people will say, who are you, Mary's boy, to tell me? How, how come you're now speaking as if you're the son of God, as if you're the Messiah? It was hard for his own hometown people who saw him grow up to see any authority in his words but they were enamored by his miracles they were proud of his miracles but they rejected him as messiah but here's the most important thing when you are a prophet of god what is the most important thing you are nothing without what your words if you are a prophet of god then the essence of your authority comes with the, your words. People actually have to take your words as the word of God. And if people, when you speak, if they look at you and say, hey, Mary's boy, and they can't see that you are speaking the word of God, you have no authority. And so they are actually blinded by familiarity. And so that's why Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. But the other thing is, his own people reject him as Messiah. So that's the story that you're setting up for in, in the next few chapters of John's gospel. 
Now, in verse 45, it says, there's this seeming contradiction. It says, when he came to Galilee, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. There's no such thing as a hometown hero. But it says the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done. Wait a minute. Jesus, John, which is it? Is it no honor or is it honor? And what Jesus is getting at and what John is showing us is that the people are honoring him for all the wrong reasons. It says, I've underlined and highlighted for you on the screen, the text that says, having seen all that he had done, not receiving what he taught or what he said about himself, but simply having seen all that he had done. You know, in our day, we can understand this. When someone does something amazing, what do we do? What do we do? We hope that someone captures it, some footage on the phone, on a video, and then it goes viral in the digital world. And if they do some awesome things and they continue to do amazing things, you keep following them. But what kind of following? You're just following them for entertainment because it amazes you. But as soon as they stop doing amazing things, you might go back every so often and watch that clip or pass it around for reference, but you start following the next best thing or the next best person. But if that person who has gone viral says something that is offensive to culture or society, even if it's true, what, is, what, what do you do? You stop following them. You cancel them. That's what happens to Jesus. He does all these amazing things. People don't really believe in him. Even Christians today. I have a blessed life. Of course, it's easy to be a Christian. Once trials come, they stop following Jesus. But Jesus starts saying things that offend them. He starts saying things in the next few chapters. You know, I am the bread of life. You got to eat, eat, eat my body. You got to drink my blood. And many of the people who were following him were offended by what he was saying. And they canceled him. They literally canceled him. The Jews killed him. That's what's happening to Jesus. The narratives that we see today are the same narratives. Cancel culture is the same narrative. It's the same devil in a brand new dress. It's Satan's way of canceling out the word of God, anything that offends. If it's true, even if it's true, we cancel. And that's what's going to happen to Jesus. Now, how do we know this is true? Turn back and look at John chapter 2. It says in our passage today that the people believed him because they saw what he was doing in Jerusalem. So what happened was that in John chapter 2, Jesus did this miracle of turning water into wine. And then the people were amazed. And that happened in Cana. And where's Cana? Galilee. And so the people, they follow Jesus to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals. And they see Jesus you know, cleansing the temple or doing his work in the temple. And then he must have performed other miracles. And so they, so they see all these miracles and they see that he's teaching with authority. And what happens? They diverge. Jesus goes to Samaria. The Galileans go home. And when Jesus arrives back home, they're waiting for him. 
But Jesus already knew what was in his heart. Remember we sang that song, The Heart of Worship. Jesus is looking at the heart. He doesn't want that outward praise. He knows that outward praise can just be fake. And so look what happens in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So, so that's, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is that they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, meaning he knew the heart of people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that these people didn't really believe him, that they were simply looking for entertainment. And that's why they were following him. They were believing Jesus for the wrong reasons. And that's why there's no contradiction. So you go back to our passage. A prophet has no honor in his own town. A prophet, people, if, if someone in your hometown, your friend, starts rebuking you, they're no longer your friend to you, even if that's the friend that you need the most. And so a prophet truly has no honor in his own hometown. Eventually, if you speak the truth of God, you will wear out your welcome. And Jesus knew that people only cared about his miracles. Now, the application for us for this first point is very simple. Unlike the New Testament believers, we might not witness, as I mentioned, these powerful manifestations of healings and miracles, but we are called to believe Jesus based on what the Bible teaches. We are, we are in fact, most of us came to faith not like the Jews, who would later sometimes, some of them see miracles and believe, but we came to faith like the Samaritans. We simply believed in the testimony of, of people who said Jesus is true, and they wrote it in the Word of God. But there is a quiet miracle that takes place in our hearts, and that is the miracle of being born again. And as a result of being born again, we receive the gospel. Now, John wants us to see this clear contrast in his gospel narratives, as I mentioned and set up for you. There are the Samaritans who believe in Jesus simply based on the testimony of the woman and the testimony of Jesus himself. They took Jesus at his word. And then there are the Jews who just demand signs and miracles. Unless we see it, we will not believe it. Seeing is believing. Sight makes right. Until I see it, I won't believe it. That's the world we live in. Now that sets us up for what we see in the next narrative at the end of John chapter 4. Point number two, we see gradual belief. We see growing belief, gradual belief. Now, in verses 46 to 54, before we read the passage, in this scene, Jesus has returned to Cana. Now, this is where Jesus turned water into wine. So, these people are enamored with him. But there's also this royal official. Now, we don't know too much about this royal official, but this is not among the common people. We're not sure if this person's a Jew or a Gentile. 
But he's, he's, he's not from Cana. He's from Capernaum. So he travels to wherever Jesus is at now. And he's going to come. And he's going to beg Jesus to heal his son. And what I want you to know is, notice is not immediate belief, but a gradual belief. And you can relate to him if you really pay attention to what the Spirit is doing here. Now, let me, let me show you what's, what happens. Look with me at verses 46 to 47 first. Verses 46 to 47. I've put 46 to 49 up on the screen for you, but just look at 46 to 47 first. So Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he had made water, the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, a little bit of geography. Capernaum is a, a bit far from where Jesus is located. So this man traveled more than a day's journey. And he had to travel. And I'm not going to get into the geography. That's going to take some time. But there's some elevation. This was not an easy journey. And he's an official, which means he has some power. He has some power, and I'll say more about his identity later, but he comes with desperation. So he hears about Jesus, and apparently, even as an official, he, he, his greatest hope is hearing about this man who could heal. And so because his son is at the point of death, he comes and he begs Jesus. In verse 48 to 49 now, if you'll look at me, he says to him, unless you... Uh, he comes to Jesus, uh, and, and he asks Jesus for healing. And in verse 48, this is what Jesus said to him. This is a little offensive. Imagine this. You know, you know, some of you, you have to get surgery, right? And you have to go to all the way to UCLA Hospital, all the way on the other side, because that's where the specialist is. And so you have to go through the 10 freeway in the morning, L.A. traffic, pre-COVID. And, and then you have to go through the 405, and that's like going through the greatest trial in your life <laughs> and add rain and, oh, <laughs> Jesus, please come back. People in L.A., California, we, don't, we can't drive in rain. <laughs> People from Canada laugh at us. Imagine this. You just made this trek, this journey, and you're like, Jesus, I respect you. I honor you. You're my greatest hope. My son is dying. I'm an official, but I bow down to you, please heal my son. And Jesus says something so offensive. It's a test. He says, Jesus said to him, unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, a note there is this you is plural. So Jesus is rebuking all the Jews, all the Galileans. But he's also speaking to this official. Now, this official can do one of two things. He can just be offended or maybe discouraged and say, look, I've asked you, and I knew that you wouldn't deliver, or, or I don't know, you were my greatest hope, but forget it. I'm offended by what you're saying. What do you mean unless I see signs or miracles? Of course, I'm asking you for a sign of miracles because I do believe. But notice how the official responds to him. He asks him again, respectfully, sir, come down before my child dies. Come down before my child dies. The official's not turned off. He's not discouraged. You see the seeds of faith, baby faith, baby belief. 
Why do we say baby belief? Because he's desperate. He's desperate. Jesus, what else does he have? Jesus is his only hope. So we're not certain at this time if we should give him so much spiritual credit that all of a sudden he's converted as a Christian. I mean, we don't know that. We just see that he's desperate. But to his credit, he is focused not just on the miracle. He wants the miracle, but notice that he's focused on Messiah. At least for him, Jesus is his only hope. And, and read carefully what he says, unless you come down. Now, he doesn't understand theology. He doesn't understand remote work. COVID hasn't hit him yet, right? He doesn't understand that you can go on Zoom, that Jesus can go on Zoom, or Jesus can remotely heal. He, he says, Jesus, unless you come, presence, unless you come down, my child's going to die. He doesn't understand Jesus, just speak it and it'll happen. He doesn't know this. He's, he, he's focused on the person of Jesus. Not just the signs and miracles. Because he could say, just heal my son. Heal my son. Give me some type of evidence or receipt. But, but he's begging Jesus. Jesus, you have to come. Otherwise, my son's going to die. You have to show up. We have to give him credit for that. Not every commentator gives him credit for that. Now, you look at verse 50. We see the center of the narrative. The man begins to believe without seeing, and he takes Jesus at his word. And so Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Go where? Go home. <laughs> go. Where's my confirmation email, Jesus? Has this ever happened to you guys? You put in an order, whether it's a Chick-fil-A food order. The larger the order, the more stressed out you are. Or ATM, you make a deposit and it doesn't give you a confirmation. Or you put in any order and the confirmation email's delayed and you're like, what happened? Did it go through? That's the society we live in. We have no patience. We, we, we have uber anxiety. That's what we go through. I, I just saw that phrase somewhere. <laughs> online. I was reading some articles. That's a society we live in. We're so anxious. Imagine the tension of waiting. No confirmation. Just trust. Just belief. And look at what the man does. I highlighted and underlined it for you. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus says in the Bible to us, we don't see Jesus face to face. Maybe he performed a dynamic miracle in, in your life. Maybe not. But he says your sins are forgiven. Do you believe it? He says that when you, if you follow him, when you pass away, you will have eternal life. He says the sin will lead you to destruction, but following him will give you true life. Do you believe it? Do you and I take him at his word? Because these are the receipts. Your changed life is your evidence. That's where we can connect with this official. So he has to make the journey back. He went on his way. It's attention. And notice 
in verse 53, I mean in 51, it says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. I think that's beautiful. The seventh hour is 1 p.m. 1 p.m. And so around 1 p.m. was when Jesus spoke the word. And he realized that. And that's why I mentioned that long before 2020, Jesus was working remotely. And he healed by command. He is the word of God. He created through his word. He renews with his word. He redeems with his word. His word brings power through the Holy Spirit and through the gospel. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. Now stop there before we, we get to his family. Because there's this part of him where he's desperate. He has to believe. Let me take you back to the Exodus journey. And if you're an Israelite, what choice do you have? The Egyptians are coming. And they're going to kill you. And then you have, you have Moses. And Moses is saying, trust the word of God. And these waters that are not supposed to be raised like this are raised so you can walk across. And at any moment, the waters can come down. What choice do you have? You either go back and be killed or be brought back into slavery. Or you trust the mediator that God has sent. And you go to the other side. You're in between. What choice do you have? So maybe you believe a little bit. Maybe your faith begins to grow. Maybe as you're getting closer to the other side, you're beginning to actually believe Moses and you're beginning to praise Yahweh. Can you see the Christian journey? And you're starting to go, but when you get to the other side, the Israelites still struggled with faith. This man, I don't know what he was thinking as he was going down the hill, back down to his hometown, this royal official, thinking, oh, I hope Jesus is, this is what, what choice do I have? He told me to go. I have no other medicine, no other way. All I have is Christ. Maybe. And then he meets his servants and says, your son was healed. And then it says he believed. His faith came into fruition. I think a lot of times, that's how we grow. We, we might not see a miracle like this guy. He actually sees a miracle. When he goes home, his son is healed. But he believes. And then in verse, verse 53 at the end, it says, and his, all his household. Then 54. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So the first sign was turning water into wine. The second sign of evidence of Jesus as Messiah is here. Now, going back to his identity, most scholars tell us the royal official, this is not someone from Caesar's house. 
Royal official means official in service of the king, and most likely this was an official in the token king Herod. This is one someone from Herod's household, maybe a lead servant, maybe some family member. We don't know exactly. Uh, possibly a Gentile. We don't know. What is Jesus doing? The Jews who are supposed to believe in Messiah, who have the Old Testament, they reject him. All they want are signs and miracles. The Samaritans, not supposed to believe in Jewish Messiah, hated by the Jews, they believe in the word of God, just the word of Jesus. This hated official, hate, they hated Herod. Herod was evil, he believes. Jesus is saving all the people who are not supposed to be saved through what? Testimony, by believing in his word, while people, other people are enamored by his miracles but rejecting him as Messiah. That's where John is going. Now, that was last week's sermon. Right? That's, so we're catching up with the rest of the church. Third point, which I'm going to highlight, and I purposely am not going to go into every exegetical detail because this is just going to set up for next week is no belief. So three responses, right? We've seen first, we've seen first false belief. We've seen gradual belief. Number two, and third, we see the third scene, no belief. And here's how I want you to understand this. Jesus wants us to take him at his word, but can we argue to say, well, Jesus, aren't there stories both in the Bible and in real life where Jesus heals people and then they get saved? So can't Jesus use real miracles to save people? Because it works. And the answer is yes, and you would think that if Jesus healed you, that you would believe. But this point shows us how fallen and how we underestimate the human condition. In this third scene, there's this man who had been paralyzed or lame, is the best way we can assume based on the context. For 38 years of his life, Jesus heals him, and he doesn't believe. Or there's no evidence, there's no clear evidence that he believes. How can that be? It can be. Now let's look. Look with me at John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So some time had passed. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades. Those are just walkways, porticles. And in these lay a multitude of invalids. Invalids just means sick. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. And then in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So simply, what, what's happening is that there's, these, uh, there's this man-made pool uh, where it's somehow fed by an intermittent spring. And so there was this superstition among the sick that they lay there 
that when this intermittent spring causes the water to, to be stirred up, they thought that that's somehow some type of magical healing, that God would come down, and so there'd be a race for the first one into the pool. The first one into the pool, whenever the water's stirred, there's a chance that they might be healed. That's what they believe. Uh, most scholars will tell you that that's just theory. That's just what people believe. Some of your Bibles, most newer Bibles, even the New American Standard Bible 2020 version has taken out verse 4, and that's why you don't have a verse 4. Verse 4, look at the note. Most of your Bibles don't have verse 4. The earliest manuscripts don't have it, which means John didn't write it, which means the Holy Spirit didn't inspire it. Somewhere along the, the line, someone took that uh, theory and put it into the Bible, and somehow it got translated and left in there. Okay, not, not the good time to talk about this right now, but just so you know. And I say that because if your pastor doesn't tell you why you don't have verse 4, who's, who's going to tell you? Okay, so that's why you don't have verse 4. Just look at the footnote in your Bible. Unless you bought your Bible at the 99 cent store, uh, you know, the outreach Bible, you should have a footnote in there. Okay, so most modern translations, including the New American Standard Bible who, that has a verse 4, has removed it because they've confirmed that that's not written by John. Okay, uh, and so, so that's the theory, that somehow some type of angel or something would stir up the water and you could get in there. But I want you to focus on this man's response. Connect with him. You don't know who Jesus is, so you're waiting for a kidney transplant. And someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you want to be healed? What are you going to say? There's no way in your mind that, that you're going to think, because this guy probably had never seen Jesus, even if he's heard of Jesus. There's no way you're going to think this man is offering to heal you. So what are you going to say? I'm waiting for a kidney transplant. I don't, I don't have a match yet. Pray for me. That's what this man says. He's saying, I can't get up and walk. There's nobody to carry me into the pool. Whenever it's stirred up, somebody beats me in. And so he's so focused on the physical elements of healing. Now I want you to look at verses 8 to 9. It says, And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man healed me. The man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now I will talk about Jesus' healing on the Sabbath and the opposition of the Jewish leaders next week. But for today, just focus on the response of the man. Unlike the official, John says twice he believed. He believed. His whole household believed. Nowhere does John say, or does Jesus tell us that this man believes? Okay, nowhere. Now you look at verses 12 to 13. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it is. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him. So here's his chance. Jesus found him in the temple. So we can give him some grace. You know, he... 38 years, doesn't know how to, he hasn't walked, he's figuring out his legs. He's stumbling. He's probably going to the temple because he's unclean. 
Maybe he needs the Jewish leaders to pronounce him clean to re-enter into society. So he's there at the temple. Now verse 12, once again, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? He, and, and he doesn't know, verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Now, a couple things we got to say here. Nothing worse may happen to you simply, we believe, most likely means eternal hell. Because in John chapter 5, it's going to talk about Jesus as the eternal judge. So sin leads to eternal judgment. Now, we know that sin is not always the cause of sickness, but you can do something really sinful and be reckless and become paralyzed, correct? Correct? You can drink uh, way more than you should, get into a car wreck and be paralyzed, and whose fault is that? You can't blame God for it. And so your sin has led to some type of paralysis. That may be the case for him, that for him specifically, his sin could have led to his paralysis. We don't know. But worse than physical paralysis is eternal judgment. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. But I want you to focus on how he responds in verse 15. Now the man went away and told the Jews. So he could have turned to Jesus. He could have said, who is it? Later on, you're going to see this blind man, same thing, healing at a pool. He's never seen Jesus. He gets healed, same thing. The Jews start persecuting him. You'll see this later. I, I, I have a hard time saving. You know, I, I always spoil it. I always go to the cross. And, and, and he actually believes. He says, who, who are you that healed me that, that I should believe? You're looking at him. I am the Christ. And then he believes in Jesus. Anyway, we'll get to that later, okay? This man, he, he has no interest. Instead, he turned. He went away. Get the imagery. Turn his repentance. Look, sin no more. Okay? You healed me. Sin no more. Turn repentance. Turn to Jesus. Instead, he turns and goes back to who? The enemies of Jesus. Commentators go into this and see that this is a foreshadow of betrayal. This is exactly what betrayal looks like. He becomes an informant to the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. So instead of turning towards Jesus, he went away and told the Jews, told the Jews oh, the guy that you guys hate, the guys you want, to, you, you want to kill, it was him who healed me. And so you see that this man has no belief. And worse yet, possibly betrayal. He becomes an informant. Instead of repentance, he goes, and I want you to understand his pressure. Feel me on this. How many of you guys can relate that he needs affirmation by the Jewish leaders, the power of his society and his culture to, de to be declared spiritually clean and re-enter into society? How many of you actually are not like him? You, you are a Christian, but somewhere in your life, you need acceptance. You need approval, whether it's from your family or your community or your workplace or your friends. And if you stand up for Jesus, if you show them that you've turned to Jesus because you know they hate Jesus, 
you're tempted. And in that moment, you struggle and then you go towards the, you give in. But Jesus forgives you. You can turn back. Now, it, nowhere in the Bible does it say that this man ever returns. But think about it. In that moment, what happens? You become spiritually what? Paralyzed. See, worse than physical paralysis is spiritual paralysis, which is unbelief. This man now could physically walk, but he could not turn to Jesus. He could physically walk, but he could not turn to Christ. He could not turn to the cross. He could not see. Instead, he was pressured. And I feel for him. I feel for I so feel for him. Because he was like, you know, 38 years I've been an outsider, an outcast, and I need the affirmation of the Jewish power structure to affirm me. Because I know that if, if, I, I, if I identify with this man, they're going to do what they do to the blind man later. Are you one of his disciples too? And what do they do to the blind man? I'm giving it away. They cast him out. And he becomes an outcast in society, but a disciple of Jesus. If I had another hour, I would begin preaching. But I can't. I got to get you to in and out. So, we got to land this plane. Can you relate to this man wanting to be accepted by the powers that control you, but that keep you from giving your allegiance to Jesus? 38 years of your life, you've experienced some type of unbelief, and you know that Jesus is good for you. I say that because there's nobody sitting in here this morning who's not at least interested in Jesus. If you're sitting in here this morning and you have no interest in Jesus, I'm sorry that your husband or wife dragged you to church. Thank you for being here. Or your parents dragged you to church. Nobody comes into a church called First Chinese Baptist Church. I know we're working on it. <laughs> you know, but, but think about that. First Chinese Baptist Church. In our society, does that sound like a church where you're going to come and get entertained? Does it? We could, we, could, we, could, we could call ourselves the Walnut Church. And people start coming. The Fairway Church. First Chinese. Nobody watching online is here for entertainment. You are here because you love Jesus. But I would imagine that there's some of you today who are here this morning and you're like, I want Jesus. That's why I'm sitting in church during Omicron. You know, I want Jesus. I need the Alpha and Omega. I want Jesus. But... There's moments of paralysis in my life. And Jesus says, trust me. Will you take him at his word that he will forgive you, he will empower you, he will give you the spirit, that there's going to be a greater healing, a greater miracle that happens in your life. If there's anyone in here this morning who does not know Jesus, oh Lord, give me mercy. I wish I could walk to the right or left of this penalty box to preach the gospel to you. We are not a culture that does altar calls. But I am going to ask, more important than any New Year resolution, if there's anybody in here today who needs to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, or who needs to come to the cross for the very first time, do not let anything hinder you from doing that. In our closing song, I will offer up my life. Stand if you need, kneel if you need to, pray if you need to, talk to an usher, talk to one of the pastors afterwards, but please respond to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the man that we read about, 
by the time we get to the end of the gospel, he is going to go to the cross. The Jews will kill him, and that's part of God's plan. He will die a sinless death, a perfect death for our sins, and he will rise again. And he is our greatest hope. And if you simply believe in the word of God given by Jesus Christ, he will change your life with or without physical miracle. You will pray. You will pray at times, like we pray on Wednesday night. You will be on your knees, and you will beg for Jesus to remove cancer or to, re- or to heal a broken relationship. You will beg, and God might not deliver, but you will believe. You will believe why? Because you will begin to see change in your heart. It is powerful. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but you will begin to see anger disappear, ability to forgive. You, you could have your body deteriorating, but your heart growing alive in Christ. Don't take my word for it. The big idea this morning is this. True belief begins by taking Jesus at his word. Take his word at face value. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we come before you and we turn. Help us to turn. Help me to turn every day to turn to you and believe even if you don't perform miracles and signs when we pray for them. Help us, Lord, to see the great miracle you perform in our hearts. Lord, help us to come back and offer up our lives to you because you saved us. Lord, there are some people in this, in this room or watching online who need to rededicate their lives to you this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do his work, that you would cause hearts to turn this morning, that they would turn to you. Father, there are some maybe this morning who need to turn to you for the very first time. Father, I pray that your mission would do its work, that your spirit would draw them to Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us who seek to follow you each and every day, but we struggle, we live in a world of uncertainty. Help us, Lord, each and every morning, each and every night to find our security in the certainty of your word. Help us to take your son, Jesus Christ, at his word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.